Hello and welcome to the Hockey Hurts podcast for January 14th of 2015. Sorry, 2016. Wow, I screwed that up. Uh, I'm Ryan Wilson. I'm Cameron Walsh. And we have a very uh, special edition of the podcast tonight. If you are a fan of hockey visualizations, we have the guy for you tonight. We have Micah Blake McCurdy on the podcast. Uh, We'll be talking about... um, Certain teams, where we project them to be going forward, some of the interesting teams. Where we teams. project them to be or where he projects them to be? Uh, well, yeah, that's true. Um, <laughs> basically, teams that maybe prior to the season aren't in spots that we thought they'd be in. And are they tracking back the right way or are they still tracking in the wrong direction? Uh, Micah is an expert on the Ottawa Senators. We'll talk a little bit about that. And naturally, towards the end, we'll, we'll, we'll touch off on some Pittsburgh Penguins. So, Micah, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. No worries. Good to see you. Um, so we'll jump right into it. Um, team projections. And, and one of the teams that I found interesting as of late, uh, they, they started horrible but are actually starting to show some signs of life would, would be the Anaheim Ducks. And, you know, they were playing okay during their losing streak. I think a lot of it was uh, shooting percentage-based early in the year, but, but they're playing some good hockey now, no? It's a lot better than it was. And it's the funny thing about the Ducks is that they've been a curious case for for standard, if you like, the new wave of standard shot analytics, shot-based analytics. And and they've had, for instance, they've had shooting percentages, team shooting percentages that have been very high for many years, and uh, and a handful of other things that, that people have said are unsustainable, like um, extremely strong records in one-goal games and a handful of other things that are that are known league-wide to be to be very close to to purely luck-driven. And, and much hay has been made about whether or not they might actually be, you know, doing something special there. And of course, the so on the one hand, you you know, you wonder about teams that that suddenly start reverting to type, if you like, the, especially when it's a team like Anaheim who's who's done the opposite for so many years. But if you if you if you put it all together, I'm not too surprised by Anaheim. The my my preseason model predictions for them put them at eighth in the West. And uh, and right now they're they're cruising along at, at just about that eighth I think in in number of points. So you uh, when you add up the, the the fact that they've been winning a lot of games recently and you put that together with the games that they lost early on, it's it kind of comes out as a wash there. Although a lot of a lot of mainstream people had them picked to have a real breakout year. But I think the, from a, a a more analytics perspective, they were never quite that strong. No, possession-wise, they they weren't all that strong, and, and I like that you mentioned the the one-goal games. They were they were freakish in their ability to to pull those out last year, if I'm correct. Yeah, oh yeah. Uh, but they did take Chicago to to seven games, so I think a lot of people have that stuck yeah. in their memory. I think that part of part of the trouble there. I mean, I don't think there was anything unusual about the fact that they played against Chicago extremely well. The I think the the weirdness there is that. People like to imagine that that the Stanley Cup winners are are by that token clearly heads and shoulders better than all the other teams, and I I just don't think that's true. That that any given year you'll have a Stanley Cup winner and and it 
And it just is the case that they could well have lost to a handful of other teams. That's uh, that doesn't that's mean really they didn't. Point. But, you know, but I mean, it, it's perfectly consistent to say that, that the Blackhawks were the best team in the league and also that various other teams were quite close to that. Including Anaheim, including L.A., probably uh, uh, San Jose was two years ago. I picked them to win the Cup two years ago, and they got up 3-0 on L.A. I was thinking I was uh, doing well, and then <laughs> that kind of fell apart. Well, that's, um, that's, just, that's just the thing, too. And people talk about going up 3 nothing and then coming back you know, is, is some sort of moral failure, which always annoys me. You know, this, winning four is considerably harder than winning three. Yeah, especially in a, a league of parity. Um, well, and it is it is a lot more parity than there was even a handful of years ago. But um, I'm looking at Anaheim right now, and they're dead last in the NHL still, even strength shooting, 4.8%. So yep. they're, they're doing that. That's not helping their cause at all. But um, covering the Penguins, I've kind of had this arbitrary data point that I've been using. Mm-hmm. Kind of sorting through some of Pittsburgh's numbers, and that arbitrary date is uh, December twelfth of twenty fifteen, and that's when they made their coaching change. Because mm-hmm. I'm trying to compare Johnston versus Sullivan. Sure. Well, when I do team-based stuff, I obviously see some of the other teams in action, and since December twelfth of this, you know, my hand-picked date, Anaheim Ducks score Justin Fenwick is by far the best in the NHL at fifty-eight percent, and. To, that's really great. Yeah. They're definitely putting the boots to teams when it comes to getting the puck up the ice. And and the finishing has not been there. And and the thing that's peculiar there is that, you know, you expect with a team like Anaheim, who has consistently put up considerably above average team shooting percentages, that especially when you consider that they haven't had a massive upheaval of of, of players in and out, compared to some other teams the that it's you know it's a, a bit of a surprise that they've come dropped to like you say 30th in the league for for team shooting percentage of five on five but then one of the persistent lessons that we never quite seem to learn is that shooting percentages are are just heavily variable for all 30 teams every single year they've always varied heavily and uh, and every single team loves to believe that you know that they're the ones who finally cracked it when they when they get their moment in the sun. Ottawa, for instance, had a had an incredible run earlier on this year of of spectacular shooting percentages, and there were plenty of fans who, you know, two years ago who would crow at stupid quote unquote fans from other teams in previous years. You know, Calgary the year before had you know any any number of examples saying, oh, you know. These people just believing in a dream, and as soon as it's your team, the rationalizations for why no, no, that's just that's just him really playing up to his potential. That's just the line mates that should have always been together. That's just our natural good looks and talent. You know, it's very very easy to lie to yourself this way. It is funny how justification when things are going your way, and and you kind of get caught in that bubble of of who you root for and stuff like that and you know that's that's kind of why the numbers and understanding how they work uh, that's why it's so valuable it kind of grounds you a little bit yep you don't have to like swear by every little piece of data but it it's grounding in a sense and i had to learn that um transitioning from 
you know, I grew up playing and all that stuff, and I kind of bought into some of these older rhetoric kind of things, and then um, it's fortunate enough to to start educating myself, reading some some very good stuff online, and you know, here I am now, <laughs> leaning more heavily the other way, but it's just a nice way to be like, okay, hold on a second, what the heck's going on here? And no, I totally agree with what you're saying. And this year for Pittsburgh, um, who I cover, uh, they're right behind the Ducks. They're 29th in shooting percentage. And Crosby, Malkin, Kessel, and, and Latang, and you're like, oh, what the heck's going on? And it's like, well, sometimes, sometimes it just doesn't go in the net. And um, you you just got to keep firing the puck and hope that that changes. And I, I think that's a good point on how you can kind of trick yourself into believing that on either side of the equation. Oh, wow. They're really, they're bad. They can't do anything or they're great. No, it's just kind of how it is. Yeah. And the, the other thing too, that it's worth, worth keeping in mind. This is, this is a persistent thing that I've been trying to keep in mind for everything I do is that, is that it's you can detect something statistically sometimes you can say well you know we can tell that this particular trait doesn't last you know that 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 teams will go on runs that are typically about so long and and you know and then they'll have droughts that are typically about so long for for when the shooting percentages is especially high or when it's especially low and so you can look at that and you can say well these things are unsustainable but then the the extra detail that you need to know to know what what you should do about that as a fan or more importantly as a coach or a GM say is you need to know why it's unsustainable is it unsustainable just because of and there's sort of two broad schools of 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 things one is just pure variance where you know some days you have a good day some days are bad the same thing is true of your opposition there's considerable amount of of what you'd call pure luck of of just speed and madness and tiny, tiny split-second things that you'd never be able to coach out of anybody. And then on the other hand, you have things where where you have people who are actually playing extremely well, the, who discover something ingenious, and then other people make adjustments to that. Mm-hmm. So you don't know if the... And sometimes the it, it can be very hard to discern the difference between them, and there's probably more of a continuum that spans from the one all the way through to the other. Like, if you come up with some incredibly clever set play where you can generate... You know, a two-on-one off of a center ice face-off, three times out of five. You know, and you start you start working that, and you just get yourself a whole bunch of two-on-ones. It looks some you know extreme peculiar set play. The you know, I mean, you don't even know if you can do that. It's just a thought experiment. Well, well, Micah, if you know what this play is, I got a <laughs> high school team that would be very interested in this in this so, play. So this, this is purely purely theoretical. You know, you, you come up with something very very clever that exploits the way that, that people typically defend. You know, that you might you might be able to work that for a handful of games before people are going to notice if you've extracted a big advantage like that, and. You know, and then they're gonna then they're gonna say, look, these guys run this play. They do this thing that involves this guy going like this. You got to go over there. You got to change your coverage. You know, and then all of a sudden your play's not gonna work anymore because people are gonna be wise to you. So it's true in that case that that's an unsustainable thing. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't do it or that it's or that you don't deserve it somehow. It just means, I mean, there you have a little edge and you gotta press it until it goes away. So there's there's definitely two angles. Sometimes you look at some stat and you say, you know, you put your 
your grown up pants on and you say, Okay, that's you know, that's that's no more than luck. We're just gonna enjoy the the fruits of that that we got and we're not gonna put any stock in it. The you know, keep our sober look roster decisions in place. And other times you look at that and you think, you know, we are the guns who for the moment have one over on everybody else and we're gonna press our advantage until it goes away. You know, we're gonna make them make those adjustments to us. I think sometimes people forget there are two teams on the ice. That's that's one of the really useful things for me as a fan, now that I've been doing league-wide work, that it forces you to look, at, even momentarily, through the lens of, of this team, and then this team, and then this team, and then this team. And, the, and you start to realize just how easy it is to watch a game purely through the lens of one team. Oh, my team scored. My team is amazing. Oh, my team got scored on. My team sucks. Like you, welcome that, to my comment section. <laughs> yeah, right. That 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 emotional, you know, journey. Like whatever happens, it's my team that is the reason that it happened. Is, I mean, you, you know, it's it's stupid. As soon as you think about it, you realize just how silly it is. But it's but it's very easy not to realize it, especially because you know you don't care about some other team. You care about your team. You know those guys. You know exactly how they ought to be deployed in your head. The you know you've you're not sure who this Clayton Pareko guy is unless you're a Blues fan, in which case you know everything about him. The you know all the all that machinery, all that history of of what you know of what's emotionally important to being a fan in a team. The can can really distract you from sometimes the reason that you lost is that the other team brought their A game and then they were unstoppable. You know, it had nothing to do with your team really. So winding kind of back to Anaheim, like, you, you had them eighth, you said? Uh, yeah, eighth in the West. They're lucky in the sense that that bad start in a different division could have really been damning, but there's there's still a lot of life for them to, to make their way into the postseason. Um, there's still yeah. potential for roster moves. Uh, I've been trying to... Uh, follow them a little bit in the sense that Cam Fowler went down with an injury, but apparently they haven't missed a beat with this uh, Shea, is it Theodore or Theodore uh, fellow that apparently has just been recently called up and, and they're doing okay. They may have a, a little bit of wiggle room with a defenseman to, to play a little trade with. Maybe. So. And, and they I mean, right now I'm projecting them for third in the Pacific, uh, amusingly lower than both of the wild cards. But uh, but still third in the Pacific. So that weakness of that division is, I mean, is definitely very helpful for them. And it's helpful for San Jose too, who've also faltered in places. And it's definitely helpful for Arizona and Calgary, who've been, um, who've been not nearly that not as strong as those teams, and yet are still well within striking distance. So, I guess. Um I don't know, Cam. What what do you think? What what would you do with um, what would you do with that roster now that you got a kind of a young guy coming up with Fowler's absence playing well? Uh, Sammy Vatnin seems to be like this guy they haven't committed to yet. Uh, what would you do there? Uh, I'd keep Vatnin and I'd trade Fowler. Yeah. Fowler seems to have a higher value. Higher perceived value than what his output would suggest, and you get there with it, and you make this statement all the time. 
trade from a position of strength and find a dumb GM. And we stole that from Travis. <laughs> Travis, so, yes. So I, I think it's I think Ken Fowler has high perceived. It's the Shea Weber Weber principle. You get there, and the perceived output of what Ken Fowler provides is higher than what the actual thing is. So, in theory, uh, to make it an extreme, you could fleece a GM in a trade by by grabbing someone that has lower perceived output but is good with underlying numbers and, and can improve your team uh, in a, a holistic sense. Where they, they need to go, I don't know where they need to go because their shooting percentage is just low, right? And I've always had this theory that low shooting percentages um, haunt a team for an entire year. Yeah, they might have some ups and downs with it, but it always seems to be a team hits the low shooting percentage curse for the entire year. I have no idea why I can't work that out. And I'd be interested to know whether either of you guys think that that's going to sort of get away from Anaheim because Pittsburgh are suffering from it as well. And I'd like to think that it could happen. I'm not sure, although it's, it's definitely possible that that you, we've definitely seen over the years that coaches will occasionally make adjustments to problems that are, that are, that exacerbate the problems instead of make them better. You, uh, the kind of misdiagnosis where if you think, you know, if you think somebody is bipolar and instead they have some entirely different ailment and you prescribe them very powerful drugs for that other ailment, you, you could easily make their life much, much worse, especially because you leave their under, their actual trouble untreated. And the, I mean, you see it all the time with players, you know, teams ice their best rosters and then get blown out by a team, especially a team that's, just happens to have a fantastic night or a great goaltender or your goalie's bad and then they say okay no we've got to you know we make two rash call-ups and send two guys down and make a stupid trade or just generally overreact or not so much overreact but but sort of sideways react where you where you just diagnose the problem incorrectly and shooting percentage is one of those things which i think is because people are hesitant to believe that it could possibly just be good or ill fortune there's a strong temptation to say, well, you know, I'm the coach, I'm the GM, I gotta fix this, or I'm the captain, I gotta, I gotta completely rearrange the way I play. And I think. But is there any is there any credence in that whole? It sticks to a team for 12 months. Like you look at the PDA train that Colorado rode to the playoffs. Um, you look at what Calgary did as well on that. Like their positive, like shooting percentage yeah. effect. You would think that talent should win out and should allow you to improve your studio percentage over the year, but it doesn't seem like that's really happened for Anaheim. Or Pittsburgh. <laughs> Don't mention that one! <laughs> but that's so, true. They both have good... Both teams have really good players. So. so one of the things that you'll see, I think, if you're looking at something which is, which is entirely driven by randomness, is that you'll see streaks of different lengths. In fact... One of the uh, one of the good mathematical tests to see if if a pure randomness theory does explain something is you can look at the streak lengths that you get for particular things and and they should follow they should follow a particular pattern also and uh, so if you there's a handful of fancy names that go behind this things called self-organized criticality which is, sounds grand but doesn't mean anything except what I just said that you can awesome. so you can is no it doesn't it sound you know it sounds very like chaos theory. Yes. That you can, but you can, you can just. I haven't done this actually off the top of my head, but it would be easy to do. 
But one of the predictions, if it is something purely random, is that you'll get you'll get streaks of of all lengths. Short shorter ones will be much more common, but uh, but you will get some non-zero chance of streaks of all lengths. And so occasionally you'll see, you know, what what appear to be extremely long streaks, which are still just created by randomness. And especially then, if that's being exacerbated by people who are who are making poor reactions to those sorts of things, then you know you can get yourself into a tailspin for sure, where you keep on floundering to try to fix things, and and maybe you you make what could be what could be a half season thing turn into a full season thing. Well, you could make the argument then that Anaheim have been the least reactive team out of the entire thirty because it doesn't feel as though they've done anything with their roster crazy to try and improve their shooting percentage. Um, the claims are out there that they're playing um, a safer game, but I don't think the numbers really play no, it out. So, I don't think there's any truth in that. No, but I'll preface that by saying where those statements are coming from are from an area of the media that scoffs and laughs at this sort of information, so I should have probably put an asterisk on that. <laughs> so you would, you would assume that randomness, if it flicks a switch at the right time of the year for Anaheim, they could become one of those very annoying teams that sneak into the playoffs and everything just clicks. Yep. Like, it's, like it's LA when they won it all. Yeah. Yeah, and of course every the other thing too, of course, is that is that you can't have you can't have a deep playoff run without having in addition to being to being strong skill wise, you also have to have at least average or better luck with injuries. Z- <laughs> and talking to, talking to two Pittsburgh us. folk here, we don't need to hear none of that. <laughs> and so the, the, you know, if you if you happen to have, you know, if you just linger around, especially in a bad division, and then all of your best players are healthy when you hit the playoffs, and then you know maybe only one important guy gets an injury of any more than a handful of games, you know that that's the kind of thing where even teams which are only a little bit above average, say, in this game of things, can have very deep playoff runs. So what you're arguing reason. here is that missing four of your top five defensemen, perhaps like I don't know Pittsburgh last year, that would be problematic. That that would be problematic. So <laughs> I mean, oh man, Pittsburgh's injuries just throw a curve in the whole uh, analysis of of that team. But yeah, you're right. You got to get. Um, you have to be healthy. There's um, those charts at man's man games lost. Those nice bubble charts that yeah, show that that show who's been winning these championships. And and gee, wow, go figure. The the teams that have all of their players uh, win games. And I think a lot of like old school mind, just the thought process. You kind of maybe see it in, on TV analysis sometimes. Oh well, next guy up. Next guy up's just got to got to fill in and next guy up is kind of horseshit i mean yeah. next guy up nah man it, these guys are that good and when you lose them it's not next guy up so i think that was a great point in in that and injuries isn't um a skill that that's stuff that just happens and yep. you're either you know, fortunate with that or you're not. Chicago has been incredibly fortunate with that over the years, and I, I don't hold that like against them or nothing. But but I think that deserves to be mentioned that you know they they get by because 
uh, or they have gotten by because they've been relatively healthy. And um, although I will give them credit last year when they were pretty much just running out four defensemen for a whole playoff run, that was mighty impressive. And they, and it's funny thing too is that that I mean it's easy to blame the, the injuries on defense, and they were definitely they definitely took a toll. But if you look at the at I mean, it didn't follow quite the expected script. I mean, you you take what Pittsburgh towards the end of last year, they were a strong defensive team. The you know then they have this rash of injuries on defense, and you think well, you'd expect that to manifest itself in in the shots against racking up really fast. But that's not what happened. In fact, well, in fact, I think what happened is that they they realized their area of weakness. They massively sacrificed their offense to to make sure that they, they kept their defense up and then all of a sudden you can't score. That carried over to this year, even without injury, losing Paul Martin, losing Christian Erhoff. And, um, you know, I found out coaching high school that you can't hide your weaknesses that well in mm-hmm. hockey. You need to play to your strengths. And, you know, I'm not comparing what, what I'm doing to NHL-level stuff, but... Uh, sometimes you just have to ride the horses, ride what you're really good at, and, and just you know hope that the other end doesn't just fall off the table. So and, just be Dallas, basically. No, that but that yes, absolutely. You you have to own what you are, and you have to play to it. And um, last year, the Mike Johnston, how he handled losing four out of five defensemen, they they still played okay. But then I think losing some of the other personnel, then having Derek Pouliot not make the NHL roster, he he went overboard with trying to... He panicked! Yeah, he he played it safe, and safe means one-goal games, but safe on a Penguins team that has the offensive talent that it does, it it neutered what they should have been. And... um, the results spoke for themselves, and and I say that confidently because their goaltending was has been pretty tremendous the last two years after having really some <laughs> some some low points Lady prior Malar. to that. <laughs> well, it's true. I mean, Mark Andre Fleury's been really good the last two years, and um, they still had their struggles this year winning games because they just couldn't score goals. They couldn't do it at even strength, and their power play was just, you know, a complete tire fire. It's it's funny what you say, that that this general principle that if you have an advantage, you ought to press it, does not does not seem to be the dominant way that any NHL teams are, are making decisions, except possibly Dallas, like, uh, like Cam said. It seems to be that the, the opposite line of thinking, that if you have a weakness, you should shore it up. Seems to They're be risk adverse. Dominant, they are risk adverse. They play not to lose games. They don't play to win. I think the first team, hopefully, because Dallas plays to win, and it's just fun to watch. If a team actually goes out of its way to play to win and win the whole goddamn thing, things might change then because it's a copycat league. In fact, all the four pro sports are. So it's one of those things where if Pittsburgh can't win it, then I pray to God that whoever does win it wins it um playing offense rather than trying not to lose in the playoffs. And, and, and that's the big test for, for Dallas, I think, is to, I don't think they'll win it this year, but to get past the first round so that all the naysayers don't just get there and, and get to go, oh, you can't play defense, you can't stop shots, you can't win in the playoffs. 
that yeah. to me is going to be the important thing moving forward, just for the quality of the game, full stop. No, I agree, and I, I mean, my preferences for for high event hockey are extremely well known. I bake them into pretty much every graph I put out on the internet. <laughs> and uh, and to, although some people occasionally I do get I do get people who are allergic to fun who yell at me for this. They uh, they don't like. <laughs> They do. They don't like their team described as dull. They don't like their favorite players described as dull. Who you know, if they play a defensive shift, it's a, it's an epidemic. I tell you. <laughs> I love the fact you have these things with dull, fun, good, bad. I, hockey visualizations. You're you're the best at it. And um, for for people that are just getting in on the entry level of kind of this stuff, you you, you provide. Uh, just a way of presenting it that's easy to digest and, and and is open to people being like, yeah, you know what, that that looks pretty good. Well, I, I thank you, but yeah. the but people seem so surprised when I put in these little, you know, these little fun things, you know, like the word fun on some of the shot charts, or you know, I put in little sarcastic comments in in the legend of a chart or something, and and people seem to forget sometimes that you know that you make a, a graph or you make a chart. The same way you make a paragraph, you know, you you sit down at a computer and you use the tools that everybody else uses, and you, you know, until you got something that looks good, and that's when you publish it. You know, it has has every inch the same personality or character or lies or truth that you can yeah. write into into any into any kind of, of piece of writing that you present to the public. And I, I think it's a little bit unfortunate that that somehow putting making a bar graph or a line graph is you know, is only the the supposed to be for people with some sort of specialized skills. Sort of reminds me of the stories that people tell about ancient Sumeria, where only a handful of people were trusted with the ability to write. <laughs> you know, it's, it's it's really very silly. The technology might not be easy to do it, but but there's really nothing. You know, if you can understand that what you know this axis is time and that axis is something that you want. You know, that's that's all you need to. To be able to understand a chart, and you and you do, you take it in so much faster. My charts and, are so uh, sad compared to yours. The, <laughs> I don't the, have any fun again, on mine. You should. Uh, the I do indulge uh, now and again of of going through my old archives of stuff, you know, just thousands upon thousands of ancient charts kicking around. Some of the stuff I was putting out five years ago is is I mean it's like reading poetry you read when you were fourteen. It's, <laughs> You know, you, you just have you just think, well, you know, why why did I do these things? <laughs> I guess the only fun thing I ever did with a chart was a few years ago. Penguins were playing the uh, Sharks, and it was uh, the game. You know, the, looking at the how the possession is gone by the game, mm-hmm. and the Sharks were killing the Penguins. Uh, so the chart was kind of flat at the bottom with Pittsburgh, and the Sharks were climbing, and I. Kind of fit in some teeth and some eyes oh, for yeah. a shark, <laughs> and that was that's the most fun I've had with a chart. Look, I'm those, sure I, that. It's <laughs> funny. I, I have a little archive of of chart doodles. I think I have that one saved away. But I but I love that stuff, and and I have like a there's a horde of people, many of them Penguins fans actually, the for whatever reason who who love to doodle on charts and you know put little decorations and. And, and sad faces and happy faces or stars or, or pictures of animals or rocket ships and and that you know that willingness to conjure up an image in response to 
to what sometimes people perceive as stuffy or stiff or mathematical, you know, stuff is is really satisfying to me. I feel like you know that's that's the emotional connection you look for whenever you make anything. I think that's data at its highest level. Yeah, like the axis are both accurate. You're getting the information, but it's also entertainment at the same time. And isn't that why we all do it? Well, sure. And I think anybody who writes for a living would recognize exactly the same, exactly the same, you know, tension at play. Where you, you know, you're not going to write down something that's that's just made up because because it's completely unfulfilling. But the and you know, because people will figure it out eventually that you're making up garbage. But on the other hand, you know, you you write for an audience. You're trying to connect with people. You're trying to show them what is going on. And people who care about the things that are depicted in the chart are going to care about your chart if you do it right. Is there a reason why this this chart stuff can't translate onto the TV? I I, I don't understand how. It seems like all the TV coverage is across all 30 teams and the national broadcasters are shying away from doing anything like this, really, in regards to trying to push a narrative with more than just platitudes. When you you yourself have got such good visualisation in regards to what's happening here and here, I I don't get why this part hasn't... Trying to talk about the advanced statistics on the TV can get very stiff and very boring, but because you've got that fun factor in, in your graphs, I don't know why it hasn't translated across onto the screen. It just baffles me. I think the big difference is time. And, and there's, there's a fundamental use of time, of the, of the receiver's time, which is completely different if you're putting out something that's static and complex, like almost all of my charts are. The, I, I'm that's very complex. ambitious. I, well, complex in the sense of, of having a great deal of information. Like I, I really try to... Uh, I mean, and some of them are just complex in the sense of, of just being busy, especially ones that are that are new, that I haven't had a lot of time or haven't had a lot of success scaling down into something simple. That, that's how it goes, incidentally, is that first you start off with this pile of massive, unintelligible garbage, and then you slowly pick away until, it's, until it looks clean. It's sort of sculptural this way. But the like, just looking at the point projection charts that I put out every day, which is probably my favorite and my most popular of all the charts, the total quantity of information is just incredible. And I, I love to, to spend, you know, this is very vain, but I like to spend a lot of time, you know, after each day's games, thinking, oh, you know, which of these teams up, which of those teams went down, looking for little oddities of this and that. And it's very kind of, sort of leisurely in a way. You, you know, the, the graph just sits there and it doesn't move, and you can, you can look here and then you can look there and you can look at this other thing and that mode of interacting with something is just completely alien to TV you know it's not it's not that kind of like let the viewer guide the process the whole idea behind a television broadcast is that is that the producer guides the process the listener just takes in whatever they're being given and and that can be extremely can be extremely compelling if it's done properly you know people love to just have a story told to them by a good storyteller but it's not the same thing as with a chart where there's not often just one story. You know, there's one story if you're a blues fan, there's another story if you're a beat reporter for the Bruins, there's another story if you're making a podcast for the Penguins. There's certainly another story if you're a beat reporter for the Bruins. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, it's funny, there's, there's one example of a team that, that my projections have, uh, have not done especially well on. I was expecting the Bruins to do quite a bit better than they've, than they've done. Oh really? 
the uh, mostly on the back of Tuka Rask, the who the goalie projecting is is a mug game. There are people who who know a lot more than I do, and and I don't think any of them would be too upset to say that even what to hear me say that even what what the best people in the world know about projecting goalie talent is not what we would all like, and uh, and so so I my projections use lifetime save percentage lifetime five on five save percentages. Mm-hmm. Which is, which is sort of better than nothing. It's probably the nicest thing you could say about it. The, and uh, and so I, in particular, Tukarask lifetime save percentage is is extremely strong, and uh, and then he's he's played well under it for pretty much the whole year. There's more I, to it than that, but that's the biggest thing. I mean, I've tried to do goaltender stuff myself. I've done the quality starts thing. I've done the comparing shot volume to save percentage and I found that the R2 was not it was incredibly low for what I thought does any of it matter? <laughs> yeah, some of it matters, but it's but everything, you know, everything you do you should be putting error bars on, or at least I I try to. And you you know, and and sometimes you just discover that that what you get is is a very large variance. So in a hard cap system, where you can only spend so many dollars. I guess this goes back to my argument that's consistent is why the hell would you invest heavily in that position? Because Tuka Rask is one of the, uh, I guess the perception, one of the most reliable great goaltenders out there. I would put him up there with uh, uh, Lundqvist and and Schneider now and who I I thought Rene, but he's having a down year as well. Well, he's getting old too. Correct. Um, it, there's just so much variance at that position. I just don't see how you could invest heavily for years on end, knowing that average goaltending's just around the corner if you if you do screw it up. Yeah, I think the the reason is, well, there's two reasons. One, I think, is that 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 variance is not commonly accepted, where where people you know there are still people who are pretty sure that they can pick a winner even if. You know, even if the last guy who had their job couldn't, you know, and and this time they're sure that it's right. The other thing too is just that that you don't just have you don't just have the the hard cap. You also have you know all these other teams bidding against you. And if you you know you might be as sure as sure can be about how much you want to commit to goalies, but you still have to pay the market rate. So you need you know. If you don't want to spend all that money, you need to convince a whole bunch of other teams to think like you also. It's not enough just for one. You can't just say, oh, you know, here's our new advantage. We're going to pay our goalies less. You know, good luck with that until you get some extra people who also think that way. No, no, you're right on that. Um, but but back to being Penguin-centric, um, like they had a backup last year in Thomas Grice who m- made the mill he's making a mill with new new york islanders and that i don't want to come off like i'm uh you know talking down mark andre fleury's year because he's he's been really really good but i look at the numbers and and grice has been better <laughs> like you know what i mean like yeah. it's, it's so that's just how it goes and i know a lot of people look at probably read my stuff and look at me cross-eyed because my 
it's not necessarily my suggestion that Mark Andre Fleury is is not better than Thomas Grice. It's just, is it five million better? Well, yeah, that's that's the kind of consideration you have to you have to make all the time. And what's worse than that is, and perhaps inevitable, is that people's expectations of what a goalie can do or should do strongly, strongly color um, how happy they are with what he does in the future. And and the difference between you know a guy who's making Thomas Grice money doing whatever he's doing and a guy like Mark Andre Fleury, even supposing they had the same stats, they would still get you know different attention in the press and their coaches by fans, you know just because Fleury's making so much more money. And I think James Reimer's another example. He's kind of been beat up over the years. He's having a tremendous year this year. Yeah, I up until. Up until I think a couple days ago, the he was leading the league this year in five on five save percentage, with you know with some some simple number of minute cutoff. Bobrovsky has just uh, snuck ahead of him. But um, you know, fellow RIT presenter to yourself, Nick Mercandante's, uh, you know his 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 goalie, you know regressing it towards the league average and all that stuff. I think Reimer's on top of his metric right now. Mm-hmm. He's he's doing extremely well with that. I I often I talk to Nick all the time the, about about that goalie metric among other things. I uh, I still don't uh, I don't compute it myself, which is why I don't I don't put it in anything. But I think uh, you know in my very non-expert opinion, I think that's probably the single best um, single stat for evaluating goaltenders that we have at the moment. Yeah, because it's 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 basically basing it off of. The, what everybody's doing in that particular season, or right, he's within yeah. the same season right now. Right, but he also that, does; he can extrapolate it further if he needs needs be. But what better to you know evaluate than to you know balance it out against your your fellow competition? And well, that's what everybody wants too. And, and every stat needs this sort of constant contextualization around. You know what? What is the quality of the league? But I happen to think that the total quality of the league, at all positions, is slowly and steadily improving. And so you, you know, you can't just say, well, he's got a such and such save percentage, and so and so in 1989 had such and such save percentage. You know, there it's 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 a big difference in years. But I even mean, so, it'll change soon. We're going to get expansion, and it'll all dilute again anyway. Well, I, uh, I'm not so sure about this whole diluting thing. On the one hand, there's some in some sense it has to just more players. But on the other hand, I don't feel like like 30 teams are consistently playing their best 22 guys. Yeah, Jonathan Druin won't be in the AHL in a 32 team league, right? It's a, I, you, You'd hope I, not. I, I'm seeing trade rumors that suggest he's probably not going to be in the AHL as of tomorrow. But we'll uh, we'll see about that. So but he's that's... going to Pittsburgh, is what you're saying. <laughs> Rumors I'm looking at say for, uh, for Chris Kunitz is that the the rumor? <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe a pick as well. Oh oh a third right? Right. I don't even know if Pittsburgh has a third. They love trading their futures. I don't even know what they have. That's the. the <laughs> but there's there's so many bizarre trades every year. Even this year, which has been low on trades so far. Every year there's there's more than a few real head scratches. Yeah, I think the first big one was. Rob Scuderi, of all people, I, that was considered a, a, a big trade. 
It, well, it was the biggest trade at the time. Well, it's a big trade if you cover that team and you don't have to watch that anymore. It's. Do you know it's funny that every single team... This is one of the, the glories of having a lot of people who will yell at you about their favorite teams. Is that, yeah. is that you know, you... Like, so I've heard the wails and moans from the people in Pittsburgh about Rob Scuderi over the years. Mm-hmm. And and this year, they were as strong as any as anywhere you want. But you can, you know, you can listen to the people in Vancouver complain about Lucas Pisa. You can listen to the people in Ottawa complain about Mark Borowiecki, who has never been scratched this year. You can listen to the people in 30 NHL teams. You know, those they're not talking about 30 identical guys, but there's a guy who fits the description on every roster, pretty much. And then you start, you know, once the stories start to mount up, you think, you know, what is, what is the, like, the average worst defender on a team? Because every team's got to have a worst one, just by definition, so how good can those guys get? Well, I think it's a matter of how much you're paying that worst guy at times. Yeah, that's the same thing we were talking about before, that, you can, you know, maybe you tolerate that kind of like, you know, just at replacement level player, as long as he's making league minimum or close to league minimum. But when he's being paid, you know, four or five million dollars, then it starts to really stick in your craw. Or three point three seven five. That number's been burned into my head when I try to concoct off-season Pittsburgh stuff, man. Trevor Daly may not be the best, but he's not killing uh, play. The, the offensive plays are not dying on his stick like they used to. So that that's um. Yeah, that's the thing nice too to is see. that is that a lot of these a lot of these sort of I mean fan favorites are one thing and fan I don't know what the opposite fan hated are another thing, and you wonder sometimes too about about guys who are playing limited minutes. Are they being given specific instructions to play in a particular style by their coaches? The, you know, it could it could well be that the reason you hate a particular player is because he is being told to play in a way that you will hate. All you ever ask for as a player in any sport is to be put in a position to succeed. I know. And if you want to get there and look at it in the Pittsburgh context, because obviously it's the team that that we we follow the closest is that I don't think that entire Pittsburgh roster was put in a position to succeed while Mike Johnson was in control of it, to the point where he was trying to make um, the worst players in the team succeed rather than the the top-end players to succeed. And to the point where Skidari's play never changed from one coach to the other. Mm -hmm. All the way through his time in, in Pittsburgh. So you get there and you go... There are situations where, and I think this is a problem with um, NHL coaching full stop, is that young players are asked to be something that they're not. I don't know what the cutoff point is to to being classed as a veteran of the league, but veterans are never asked to change who they are. And Rob Scuderi was never asked to be anything different. Maybe it's because people know that he can't be any better than, than what he is, but young players are always asked to be something they're not. Bo Bennett's a prime example of that. The theory was that he's soft, but no, he's just injury prone. So he kept getting asked to hit everything after the puck was gone, and he kept getting put out of position. Once he stopped doing something like that, his production started to improve. So I think you're right. There are situations where coaching is overcoaching, I suppose, because they try to change someone into something they're not. 
Yeah, and of course the the trick is that you know young players can be changed, and in some sense they have to be changed. You, know, you can come out, you can be dominant in junior, and Jonathan Drouin's a good example of this. The he, I mean, I watched him play in person in Halifax, the, and when he and McKinnon were together, the, they just you know they played no defense whatsoever. There was no need of it. They they literally never had to, and and so it's in a way it's not surprising that he doesn't he doesn't have what you need to play as an NHL player in terms of defensive ability. And so at some point he has to learn that. And so that's that's clearly a task for coaches. But you can get it into your head that if you're the ones who have to mold, you know, all of these young players with their offensive ideas into into good foot soldiers, you know, it's, the, the line between good coaching and overcoaching is very very easy and since you want to help your team, you know, why would you why would you do less? There's a ex- very easy temptation there to to overcoach. But once again, it comes back to being risk adverse. It comes back to turning someone into something not to lose rather than trying to exploit the talents to help help you win. And I think that's the thing that frustrates me the most about hockey as a sport. I think yeah, it's, it's definitely there. I mean, that's that approach, that whole, you know, league-wide, you definitely see that, although not to the same extent with every franchise. No. I think my favorite thing that I hear is this young person does not have a 200 foot game but it's this 200 foot game just it just never seems to apply to the offensively inept i know 200 feet really means 160 feet to some am i crazy (laughs) with that or when you hear this guy doesn't have a 200 foot game it's always the guy that can create offense and maybe you know isn't that good defensively um but it doesn't doesn't ever apply to the guy that can't generate worth the shit, but that's well, where we there's, are. There's a there's an observation bias there too. Like, you know, some some of those players who who are defensively marginal and offensively useless, like they don't even get their names into those conversations. You don't even bring them up to talk about them. You know, to comment about whether or not they have a 200 for game or not because they're not in, up for discussion because there's nothing to say about them. Well, damn those fancy stats for getting in the way of that <laughs> the narrative, right? I mean, come on. Yeah, and, and I think there's also, you know, a lot of the management teams around the league, I don't think they have any illusions about how some of their, how some of their weaker players are weak. But they don't see any particular need to say, oh, you know, we know that, that this sixth slash seventh defender isn't, you know, isn't really good enough. There's no point in saying it. He knows how good he is. We know how good he is. And if we had an easy way to replace him, we already would have done it. You know, there's sort of nothing productive to be said about him. And so why why bring him up in public just to just to make him realize how bad everybody realizes he is already? Incredibly fair. That is yeah. incredibly fair. I'm I'm probably too nice as a habit this way. No, that's, no, that's fair. That, I mean, why, there's no point in intentionally bashing your own. Uh, but actions speak louder than words. You don't have to keep, if you have a better option, uh, yeah, don't, and, don't and play that see, option. And there were, you see examples of that. I mean, just the other day, for instance, the um, Patrick Waugh was asked some questions about Nate Gannon, and, and he said, in a, in a nice way, he said, you know, we we don't think he's especially good, but we don't, you know... But we, we, you know, we like some of the things that he does, and then the next day he was on waivers. So they were, you know, there, there was clearly, like that was clearly already in the works. The, but they, 
you know, and, and Wah was asked a direct question about one of the weaker players on his team, and he did his, was, did his best to be diplomatic about it. Yeah, you don't have to be an asshole about it. <laughs> I yeah, guess I mean, it's bad enough to be on waivers. Um, Being an asshole is bad at the outro. <laughs> <laughs> we try not to do that, but yes, we're guilty of it as well. Um, one team I do want to talk about, and we haven't really raised it on, on this podcast much this year, would be um, the Ottawa Senators, which is a, a you know an area of expertise for yourself, Micah. Uh, should we just lay this down as your open forum for Eric Carlson for the heart, or <laughs> what, what, what should we do here? Well, I, I, I don't oppose any notion of giving Eric Carlson the heart. I think that's an excellent idea. And, and, and one of the, the fun things about, uh, one of the fun things about doing a lot of statistical work is that good players reveal themselves as good in many, many different ways. You, you know, you look at them through this lens and you see that they're, that they're very strong. And then you look at them through this other lens and you see that they're still extremely strong. You know, you, you're sort of, your good middle six players are very good at one thing and very poor at another thing. And, and the stars, what really makes them different is not, you know, a superhuman ability at one particular thing as a rule. It's generally the ability to be, to be extremely strong in lots of different areas. And so, I mean, Carlson's a fine example of that. And, you know, the more you look at him, the more strengths you see. And Crosby, incidentally, is another extraordinary example of this. And the fact that he is having a legitimately poor year, or at least he was at the standards. start of the season. That, well, that's that's just it, is that you, you know, to try to understand what's going on with Crosby, you look at, at his current numbers in the context of his historical numbers, you know, and by historical, I mean even just the last handful of years. And then you start looking and you're saying, actually, his, you know, that context is, is extraordinary. The, so with... With Ottawa, the, I mean, in some sense, the problems are, are very similar to what a lot of teams are having, that the, that they, they have a, a strong, like a, a big weakness in the at the bottom end of their defenders, that they, you know, they're they're rotating through new guys now. They've called up Frederick Clayson and now, and then healthy scratched him. Where they look at at Weidman and now he's also being scratched and they're. You know, Cowan played lots of games and now scratched, and Borowiecki is is the only fixture there. But, but they, you know, and they, it's funny. This is the other thing too. They, like the management talks up how much they adore Borowiecki. He's a good local boy. He plays very hard. He takes a, just an incredible amount of abuse. I don't think I've seen any other player who, who, who is boarded more, for whatever reason. Chris Letang. Well, Letang, <laughs> yeah, famously boarded heavily recently. The, and the. You know, they like they talk up how much they love him, but then you look at the number of minutes he gets, and he's clearly not, you know, very high in their estimation when it comes to when the chips are down, when you're actually putting guys out on the ice. And so, so I think they're in the same position that that a whole raft of teams are in, where they would love to upgrade their defense, but they're not sure about how to do it, and and the options for that are available, especially with a limited budget like they have in Ottawa, are are not, you know, not. It's not easy. You know, it's it's. It is very easy to yell and scream and say, "Well, the defense isn't good enough," and it's quite another thing to to do it. The forwards yeah. are another interesting case where you know everybody loves to to complain that that forwards that they like are not being played enough. And if I were coach, I would certainly play guys like Shane Prince. Oh, oh, a lot more. You hit off one of my favorites. You know why? Why? Where's Shane from? I don't know. Rochester, New York. Aha. Uh-huh. <laughs> 
So I I actually want to say this. I, I looked into some of Shane's numbers and um you know the hometown guy uh, sure sure um my parents are very good friends with his uncle okay. and um basically i'm looking at his stats and he, what is he 1.98 points per 60 at 5 on 5 and yep. his he's second overall in and just raw coursey 4 percentage Yep. And then I look at dailyfaceoff.com and he's playing with Chris freaking Neal. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's definitely part of what of what makes me very I'm I'm not especially strong at, at prospect development. I do a lot better at, at um because analyzing players analyzing play from outside of the NHL is, is much, much more difficult than analyzing NHL itself, where the, the quality of competition is much more uniform and the and the data gathering is much, much stronger. Oh, but, is the data gathering stronger? <laughs> st- well, the thing is, however, however bad it is in the NHL, and I've complained loudly on you know to anyone who will listen about about you know play-by-play files that make no sense and and you know all data gathering decisions that are inane. But but in every other league, it's it's either worse or or unacceptable. Or, yeah, or just not there, just nothing at all. Not to divert this, but like uh, the Panthers hiring Josh Weisbach. I mean that's that's really good because isn't that what he does? Yes. So I mean, if you want to talk to somebody about prospects, you don't talk to me. You talk to somebody like Josh. No, but I'm saying like that they're trying to corner the market on something that doesn't exist. That's somebody that was creating it. Yeah. So he, you know, he's written scrapers that are that are gathering data and and making it accessible to people, and uh, and it's surprisingly tricky. And and it doesn't uh, it's not commonly done, so you know, that that kind of overlap of the the sort of programming skills that you need to do that and the hockey interest you need to want to do it and the time to be able to do it that's you know that's not common to get all three of those things together. No, the, it's I'm... funny just mentioning about Prince. The he scored uh, his first NHL goal along with his second in the same game. He had a whale of a night, and. Uh, and I, I commented on it as well, as did many other people. His uh, his sister retweeted me, and I noticed the name and, and poked around. Her entire timeline that day was nothing but saying, but retweeting people who said nice things about her brother. Oh, good very for touching. Her. Very good for her. We should, uh, we should all have brothers and sisters who are so nice to us. No, he exactly. Run, they, they run a hockey uh, clinic. I think his dad does, or or something of that nature. And uh, I, I was coaching a high school game last. Um, holiday time and um they had uh, just kind of a casual skate not not the clinic itself but like shane was in town and and, and a lot of my guys i i skate with were were on the ice and man shane he's very talented i mean there were some high-end you know local skaters not nhl but in you know you can you can see talent and sure I what's the hesitation there? I mean, like you're Ottawa, uh, who who's getting in his way? Well, so there's a handful of of curiosities there, and I think the number one perception that that keeps him out of the lineup is that there's there's an idea in Ottawa that there's more than enough offense. And, and to a certain extent, that's true. They certainly score a great deal, one of the highest-scoring teams in the league. Well, despite Carlson being, plays 30 minutes a night. <laughs> I, I, like, I mean, there's, 
it, it's difficult to to be too upset about personnel decisions when you know when the best players are clearly playing the most minutes. Like, yes. On the whole, there's no doubt that, and and you're always going to find some sort of argument where you're saying, well, why why is Zach Smith getting 18 minutes a night, and why is Shane Prince only getting six minutes a night, and why can't we reverse those numbers? And I, you know, sure, if it were me, I would do that, but that's not actually that many minutes. And and I try, as a matter of self-discipline, to step back and get a little bit of perspective sometimes and say, well, you know, is it... Sometimes a lot of, t- you know, you pile on mistakes, not because they're especially important, but just because to you they seem especially obvious. The And... You know, you get this chorus of people, and they all think the same way as you do, and that that might make the mistake even more obvious, but it doesn't actually make it any more harmful. Well, I, I'm incredibly biased. I, I I just want to see the local kid do do well, <laughs> but but I'm looking at numbers. One point nine eight is is first line level even strength offense, which um, I'm looking at Sidney Crosby this year. He's not hitting that. No, and Shane Prince, of course, is hitting those numbers in considerably fewer minutes than Crosby is. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> and it's—I mean, I'm sure he's delighted to be compared to Shane to Sidney Crosby. But the <laughs> so that's—I mean—that's definitely part of it. Is that you can look good in in short samples, and you would hope at least that looking that good in in short samples would at very least get you a, a an extended look, you know, to to see what can you do in a larger sample. And so there's a frustration there. I mean, but I look at Kyle Turris. He's a, a he, if I'm reading it correct, 1.51. I, I think hi, very highly of Kyle Turris's play. Obviously, Shane Prince is being uh, aided by this the smaller sample. I, I get that, but but why? It goes back to the argument of of why do we um, favor the grinders? The it's back to that 200 foot game thing. I think. Risk adverse. Yeah. Yeah. That's perception. Like, which players are understood to be good at defense um, in the minds of, of coaches is is extremely strong. And and there's a there's a track record effect there where to be trustworthy you have to you have to play a certain number of minutes without ever doing particular things. And if that means you have to cut off your your nose to spite your face, then so be it. So that's that logic is is definitely present and is unfortunate. Because I'm there looking at Shane Prince, his Corsi against per sixty is the fourth best on uh, Ottawa forward or defense. And guess what? <laughs> Shane Prince is at fifty five point three, and uh, Eric Carlson is fifty three point six. He's right next to him, and Carlson's the third best. But your, but your buddy Zach Smith is up there, though. <laughs> he's he's second. <laughs> Yeah, so it's it's you know the those kinds of coaching decisions are based. I don't think in Ottawa they're they're being based on the same kinds of numbers that you're quoting or the numbers that you and I would look at. No, and I, I as an organization, I don't think there's a great deal of buy-in to to what you would recognize as analytics. I may have listened to a hockey PDO cast where Mr. Travis Yost um, may may have called into question the the coaching of the team. <laughs> But you know that's. So I I have a, a peculiar sympathy for coaches, the because of being a teacher, is uh, that that feeling you get where you're you're desperately trying to get something across to other people that you understand that they don't understand, but you're not the one who does it; they're the ones who have to do it. 
you know you want to and you you struggle to try to 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 put across the mechanisms that you need to be put in place to get particular results and so you you look at something statistically the and so you see in some sense you i think it's definitely the right way around to look at it you see well this guy gets better results than that guy and so so obviously we want to get more of him and less of the other chap but but if you're a coach you know it's not just enough to look at at those pure outputs you also have to have some sort of you have to have some sort of idea about what mechanisms are going to actually give you those results well what was the, um oh gosh the the thing that was spoken of at the RIT conference that we both attended um you research for 100 minutes, you talk to the coach for 10, and the coach has to relay that in one minute to the player, yep. something along those lines. Um, I, does that not apply to kind of the, the point? Abs- absolutely. And the other thing, too, is that is that if you, you're judging somebody on output, which is, which is sensible if you're trying to make a team that wins, but when you're giving instructions, you have to give instructions about input. The... So you can't, you know, you can't just say to a player, you know, you're, you're allowing too many shots, fix it. You know, well, you're the coach. It's your job to tell the player how to fix it. You have to tell him, you know, this is what you're doing that's causing you to, to give up shots. You know, you're not clearing the zone in, you know, you're failing in these particular ways. You know, these are the skills we need you to improve. These are the choices we need you to make. The, and that, that link is, is definitely not being provided by by modern analytics. I think we're getting little little hints of it, but that kind of you know stuff that you could take to a coach and you could say, you know, you can't just say, well, play this guy, not that guy. It'll work out better. Trust me. That even if you even if you're right, you know, you need that extra detail of saying, you know, this is what you tell people when they falter in these ways, and that's and this is the output you're going to see that matches it. I don't think NHL coaches are teachers anymore, though. I, I, everything you've just said then is exactly right. And the, the final part of the communication in regards to trying to correct those problems that the analysis will, will show comes down to, to coaches at the NHL level not being teachers. Like, you, you coach kids that are wanting to learn and improve because they might they have a dream and a goal to get somewhere, right? A, sure. lot, of those, a lot of those NHL players, it seems to me, I don't think they're uncoachable, but I think the the coaching staff focus more on a broader, like a bigger brush, more so than getting out a little fine one to try and get the details right with some of the players. Well, there's an unwillingness between both the coach and the players to work on those little things that would help assist in reducing shots against or help improving um, shots for. It's it's like that that final bit of the communication that you were talking about, Micah, is the I think that's the next thing that's going to transition the use of analytics into on-game adjustments. Yeah, I agree completely. That's that's the real the real gap for me. You can't communicate what you don't believe in. Well, that's there's that if, too. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you have to you have to have the courage of of knowing what you're talking about, which is not just a matter of of you know reading the right people or 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 doing particular research, you know, you also have to have some conception of of how likely the things are that you say are going to come to pass. You know, everything you say is, you know, it's going to be countered by 
by other people, there's some chance that it that it'll work. There's some chance that it won't work. So you have to be realistic too by saying, you know, the improvement that you're going to get here is like this, and then people can decide if it's worth it or not. I think my um, the guy I coach with joked with me today. Hey, don't you got any analytics on <laughs> on this for? Uh, for the high school team and I'm like yeah I'm not so sure the sample size is large enough for us to get into any of that 20 game season there's um, lots of assumptions that don't that don't hold when you start looking at at different leagues too you know you you just you know you can you can joke about about the worst players in the NHL but the worst players in the NHL are still pretty decent hockey players I've played against some of them in Rochester um just for example, like uh, the Rochester Americans used to have a fighter named Sean McMorrow. And um, I don't know if he got a cup of coffee with the Sabres or not, but like, you you know, you, you in the public eye, fighter, 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 and you think fighter, no skill. Mm-hmm. You know, we were in a beer tournament or whatnot. He's pretty good. Of course he is. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know what I mean? Like, that's well, just my personal example of it. But, like, oh, well, he Dutch, can only uh, drop the gloves. But Dale yeah, Weiss, Dutch Gretzky, they called him. The, the He completely rewrote the Dutch League record book in the lockout year. It's, uh, like, oh, he has, they, they don't call him Dutch Gretzky for nothing. They're, no one's ever going to top those records. He completely ran rings around the entire league. And uh, and I don't I don't think he hits the average player mark in the NHL, which is not an insult to him. It just is more. No, about no, the no. I know league. exactly. I know exactly what you're saying. I don't think people realize how good these guys are, and quite frankly, the PGA has the best slogan ever, and it's what the NHL should have gotten. These guys oh. are good. <laughs> Incidentally, I looked up Sean McMorrow. He played a single game for the Buffalo Sabres in 2002-2003. How many penalty minutes? No goals, no assists, no penalty minutes. Oh, that's a shocker. None. Um, no, but I, I my point stands. He he made plays in that beer league tournament, and he's he's a nothing fighter to to most people's perceptions. Yeah, uh, but it you don't... just goes to show how good. I mean, we. I have written many negative things about Craig Adams, but there's no doubt in my mind that um, if he showed up in a beer league tournament uh, here in Rochester that he would exhibit just extremely good hockey skills. <laughs> you sure. know what I mean? Yeah, sure. It, it, that's just how it is. It, steal that PGA slogan. These guys are good. Yep. So... Um, I don't want to keep you much longer, Micah. I know that uh, you got to fly tomorrow. You you are going to the Ottawa Analytics Convention coming up, um, so you can talk about that. Uh, let us know where we can find you. Let us know um, all the great stuff that you do. Sure. Well, thank you very much for having me. The uh, you can uh, so I have a website where I where I put. Uh, Various brightly colored things. The, it's called hockeyviz.com. The viz.com that is. The and so that's uh, that's updated every day after the results of every games. 
and so most of the most of the charts are are explained with with detailed explanations there and uh, and if you don't understand anything you can always hit me up on Twitter or uh, for reasons of, of history I'm at ineffective math all one word and uh, so where I and I like to post drafts of, of new ideas on uh, on Twitter all the time so and, and people are it's one of the great joys of working for the public is that people will people will give you lots of great ideas and lots of great feedback and so all the time I have you know, I'll come up with something new and then essentially beta test it with all kinds of people who are interested in new material. And and once it gets good enough, then it goes up every day on the website. And uh, and it's my full-time job, which I do all the time. I teach a little bit math and physics at a couple local universities here, but my but almost all of my hours of the day are are working on hockey. And uh, and I'm supported in large part by by people on the internet who make donations. The, I take donations through a crowdfunding website called Patreon. And you can look at the project at patreon.com uh, slash hockeyviz. And you can, uh, if you make donations of $10 a month or more, you uh, you can get early access to charts. You can have them as soon as they're made. And if you, uh, if you just like to look on the sidelines and enjoy the pretty charts, you can see them the next day when they come out around 2 o'clock Atlantic. So that's the it's a. It's very unusual. I don't know anybody else who's who's trying to make a living in this way of working for the public. Most people seem to justifiably get snapped up by teams who want them to shut down their websites. But I'm, but I'm going to make a real go of of working for, in some sense, for all 30 teams, for uh, and and in particular for fans. I'm entirely grateful that you're in the public sector. <laughs> I can yes, say yes, that. yes. <laughs> um, well, I, uh, you're welcome. No, but uh, Michael will also be um, speaking at the next analytics convention, which, which will be Saturday, and you said that it is actually going to be broadcast live on TSN. Yes, on the not on the television channel, on the, one of their radio channels. Yes, have, uh, yes, correct. They're sending a radio crew, and they're going to broadcast it uh, all day long. You can... You can find information on that on the on the good old internet. Google is your friend as always. I forget exactly which TSN station is uh, is doing it, but um, but I'm going to be uh, not only am I speaking on I'm I'm the last the last talk of the day, which is uh, the headline. The, I, I guess that's the. I've already had a number of uh, unkind people tell me that that's good that they uh, that they had a flight to catch anyway, and so they won't be missing anything. <laughs> so now now now. Let me say this. Are we going to be comparing apples and oranges again? Or... <laughs> I, I assure you, uh, there will be no dancing. No, no, singing, no! No! No shenanigans of any kind. No, that, that's not what I wanted to hear. There will be sobriety and learning. You will all enjoy it. That does not that's have... Not... That those are not mutually exclusive. You can <laughs> learn... Without the sobriety, and there can also be dancing and fun charts and all of this nice stuff which you encompass. There in definitely your work. will be fun charts, and uh, and if people yell at me to dance, then I I'm, I may have to give the crowd what they want. Well, you, you, you kind of heard that crowd. <laughs> <laughs> so um, yes, wonderful stuff. Hockeyviz.com, correct? Yep. Yeah. Um, I I link Micah's stuff into into my work uh, uh, semi frequently. Uh, he, 
he's wonderful. Uh, I highly recommend you following him on Twitter and, um, you know, the information he provides is, is unique and, and adds to the, the hockey fans experience. So, um, Micah, thank you so much for being on the podcast this evening. Thank you for taking, uh, the time, uh, knowing how busy you are moving forward. So we're, we're very grateful. You're welcome. Thank you very much. So thanks Mark. I, I think that'll do it for this week's Hockey Hurts podcast. Until then, I'm Ryan Wilson. I'm Cameron Walsh. And I'm Micah McCurdy. You certainly are.